This is Bill. He is a reformer. It's not just a t-shirt. He's shaping culture, one person at a time, one conversation at a time, um, one accidental conversation at a time. Many of the things that he's done, he has no clue about. He knows about things he's done in public. He knows about some of the things he's done in private, but some of the things that Jesus is going to be the most praising on the day, with a capital T and a capital D, is stuff he has no clue he did. It's stuff that came out of who he has become Mm. now that God got a hold of him deeper and deeper. And it's growing, it's deepening, it's still going. And I enjoyed last time he came. I anticipate that we're going to enjoy this time as well. So give it up. Standard Gateway welcome, Bill Vanderbush. I'm going to have to wait until she comes back in here to introduce my wife to you. Here she comes. Oh, let's embarrass her good. Everybody. (laughs) That is my beautiful wife, Tracy. True story. I met her when I was five years old. She was my next door neighbor. And uh, we got married at the age of 18. And... uh, Now we just celebrated our 27th wedding anniversary. Yay, so cool. And we still find things to laugh about. It's just, it's cool. We're a a weird couple. We enjoy being married. We enjoy traveling. We enjoy ministering and pastoring. We just seem to, I just think, I, I, I feel like I'm at that point in life where I love everything that I do. That's kind of a cool thing. I don't mean to provoke anybody to jealousy tonight if that's not your story, but uh, um, I think that what God ends up bringing about for us, if you stick with the journey and don't, and don't stop the book right in the middle of the story, just hang on because I think it gets good. Hold on tight because it gets good. It really does. And, um, and especially when you come into a place of unity and agreement. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. Unity and agreement. You got anything you want to share this evening? Got got anything stirring in you? All right. When you do, like, holler at me. Or let's see. Is there a microphone handy? Put her on the spot here. Where'd it go? A handheld one. That one right there. Let's see. Awesome. Well, it's good to be with you guys. And uh, yeah, so you put me on the spot, but. What I That's do. okay. <laughs> um, just kind of to go along with what you were saying, he was saying, you know, we really are in a place of enjoying what we're doing, and it wasn't always like that, you know, and I think everybody goes through seasons of hell in their lives and seasons of hopelessness, and we've been there. And, uh, but like he said, hold on, because God's not finished and he has a plan for you and so if you are in a place like that I'm telling you he's right there with you he's with you in those places of darkness if it seems hopeless the hope himself hope himself love himself redemption himself is right there with you in it and so there's good to come for you so I'm just happy to be here and uh I love this season. I am a Christmas fanatic. I love everything about it. Um, I've heard some people complain about the commercialization of Christmas, and they're just commercializing it. In my opinion, well, see, I used to be like that. I used to say those things, but now I'm like, 
you know what? Come on, the more the merrier. Let them put up those decorations and play that Christmas music. <laughs> so, in August. Uh, you know, so, <laughs> I, yeah, in August. <laughs> so I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having us. And I know tonight, this whole weekend is going to be great. So yeah. bless you. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, a couple of things back there I'm real, real excited about. We've got, we've got a lot of resources this time, and um, one that just came out last Saturday uh, is, uh, is a book. Um, so I'm so excited about this book. It's called Reckless Grace, and it's a message I preached about eight years ago for the very first time, and uh, I didn't know if I believed it when I preached it. And I, I was, it scared me. It was one of those things where I said it, and when I said it and I heard myself say it, I thought, I'm not sure I agree with what I just said. I'm trying to look like I do, but I'm not sure I do. It seems so radical and so out there, but it was a personal challenge the Lord was making to me and really to everybody who was hearing it at the time. And uh, about six years ago, I was at, um, at a conference and preached that same message on, uh, on grace. I'm gonna talk, talk a little bit about it tomorrow night. But I uh, preached the same radical grace message and there was a girl in the, uh, a lady in the, the congregation named Britt Eaton, and she heard the message and it offended her, made her angry. She was very upset, and yet she couldn't shake it. And um, her marriage was on the rocks, her health was in bad shape, emotionally she was a mess. She finally said yes to, to this, and, and God healed her. Totally healed her body, healed her marriage, healed her emotions, the whole thing. So she hung on to this for years. Six years later, she runs into me at a conference. And, um, and we started visiting, and I had just had a conversation with a friend. He said, Bill, you preached this message on grace that saved my marriage like eight years ago. You really need to put this in a book. And I said, I've tried to write this so many times, and I haven't been able to do it. And he says, you need to find a ghostwriter. Well, he and I were traveling through Ohio on our, way to our, on our way to a conference. When I got to the meeting, when I got to the church, this girl was sitting about the fifth row back. And after the meeting, I started talking, uh, visiting with her. She says, I'm a ghostwriter and really want to preach this me- or put this message in a book. We put the message in a book and uh, just came out a week ago. And I'm so, so, so excited about this. I gave an advanced copy to a a friend of mine who was going through a really, really difficult season, massive season of offense. And she read it all in one sitting in one night, went to bed that night, woke up the next day, called Tracy and I, and we're like, whoa, who is this person? And she was like a different person. So there's a supernatural power to the grace of God. Have you ever heard the term fallen from grace? When he fell from grace? It's a term we use every time there's some scandal or some Christian messes up, some prominent Christian leader messes up, and we say, well, they fell from grace, they're fallen from grace, as if some sort of balance has been restored to the the universe. And and listen, if if you've ever been in a position in your life where if it weren't for the grace of God, there was no hope for you, then this book will make a ton of sense to you. But if you think that grace is just merely God's medicine for the morally sick, then you're going to want to skip this book for a while until you get over your religion. Because grace is not something you fall from. Grace is someone you fall into. And uh, why do we call a book Reckless Grace? God's not reckless. 
Reckless means, think about this. Reckless means I make a decision with no regard for myself at all. And there's nothing more reckless than the cross. You say, well, it means that the, he, he didn't think of the consequences of his actions, and God is fully aware of the consequences of his actions. Yes, but on the cross, he didn't take away your ability to say no. He bled out for every single one of us without putting us in a headlock and forcing us to say yes. He chose to die for people who may never receive his sacrifice. That's what makes it reckless. And the challenge is not that we try to convince you of God's reckless grace, but the challenge is what would happen if you and I release grace in the same way? Give expecting nothing in return. It's a great verse in the Bible. Given it shall be given unto you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men pour into you with the same measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. Anybody remember that verse? You've heard that one? Most of the time when you hear that, it usually accompanies something in church called an offering. <laughs> However, the verse has nothing to do with money because it comes right after a verse that we quote on completely separate occasions and the verse goes like this. Judge not lest you be judged. Condemn not lest you be condemned. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure. See, it has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with the giving and receiving of judgment or grace. And you want to experience judgment in your life? Habitually give it away. It's called sowing and reaping. But you want to experience grace in your life? Give it away recklessly and radically. And the more you give it away, the more it starts manifesting in your life. It's funny how that works, but it's true. Oh, man, I should be saving all this for tomorrow night, but I just can't. I got to say, hardest thing in the world to do is to forgive yourself. But right after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, if you don't forgive, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. But if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. It sounds very transactional, as if God is just sitting there waiting for you to do the right thing so that he can do the right thing. But it's not that way at all. It's this. There is an instantaneous reciprocation when you are willing to release grace over somebody else whether they deserve it or not, whether they repent it or not, when you are willing to recklessly and radically release grace over somebody else's life in a way that sets both of you free, suddenly the manifestation of that grace that you've just released hits you. That's how you forgive somebody else, is by giving grace away. To, you forgive yourself by giving grace away to somebody else. And when you start to realize the effect of it, you will become a grace addict. You will be looking for people who are being crushed under the weight of self-inflicted condemnation, and you'll want to give grace away to them. You just will. Oh, we'll talk more about that tomorrow night. All right. So that's back there, and there's a whole bunch of uh, audio, video teaching, and all kinds of crazy stuff that's back there. There's a lot of stuff, so I'll be back by the table at the end. Um, if you've got your Bibles, go to Revelation. Let's do something complicated tonight. Let's try to make sense of the book of Revelation in a very short amount of time. <laughs> it's Saturday night. We need, we need super light teaching. So let's go to Revelation. Um, we're, gonna start, we're gonna start somewhere else, but we're gonna eventually get to Revelation. So uh, I want you to, to, to think of something here with me. I, I, I wanna lay a bit of a foundation this weekend. Every time I come, 
Um, I'll, I'll lay a foundation for what we're going to be building on over the weekend. Last, last time I talked about identity a lot, talked about uh, you in Christ and Christ in you and the fact that there's no distance or separation between you and God now and that started all the way back in Genesis and we carried it all the way into the cross. And tonight I want to talk to you about another real solid foundational principle in, in my life and I've got a ton of these but see I've only been here twice so this is number two. Um, <clears throat> the hinge point of all of human history is the cross. Right, we're gonna call this right here the cross. I'm gonna say that that's what this is. It's the hinge point of all of human history. It's, it's, this is the point at which everything changes. We're gonna say that this right here is going to be pre-cross, and this right here is going to be post-cross, after the cross. Everything on this side has, from the fall of man all the way up to the cross, you have some of it is law, but most of it is actually, is actually not. You have a large period of time, around 20, 2,800, 2,840-some years, something like that. Between Adam, if you're going by the biblical timeline, between Adam and Moses at Mount Sinai, you have a big span of time where you don't have the Mosaic law. From Moses to the cross, you've got about 1,300 years of space right here. So not everything in the Old Testament is Old Covenant, right? And not everything in the New Testament is New Covenant. So the Old Covenant exists, let's say, 1,300 years. You get all the way up to Jesus, and you have this window of time right here where Jesus comes on the scene, and from the time that Jesus is starting his ministry all the way up until the time he goes to the cross, he's speaking Old Covenant language to an Old Covenant audience. But he's a smart guy. And so there is a layered revelation in here. That's why he's always saying this little phrase that he liked to say a lot, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, hey, for those of you who just want to be entertained, I'm going to tell you a fun parable. A certain man had two sons, yada, yada, yada. But for those of you who have ears to hear, and you dig into this a little bit, <laughs> there's so much stuff hidden in this story. It's un that's that's for him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so why does Jesus do that? Why does he hide revelation and not make it just blatantly plain? Well, because revelation comes with responsibility. Revelation, when you, you get revelation, you gotta do something with it. And if you're not prepared to do something with the revelation that comes to you, but it comes to you anyway, then suddenly, just because you've heard it, you've been in the room and it's been released, and now it's been made plain to you, your responsibility has just increased beyond perhaps your capacity to obey what you've just heard. Well, that puts you in a very awkwardly dangerous position. So what Jesus does is he hides amazing revelation in the middle of stories and parables. Yet in these parables, he's speaking in Old Covenant language to an Old Covenant audience. Now, in the Old Covenant, you have this perspective of distance and separation from God. Everything these guys were doing was trying to somehow come up with a formula to get close to God. And, and they always were looking for a new rule, a new, a new method, something that I can do to get closer to God. On this side of the cross... Jesus gives us this amazing revelation that he hinted to a bunch over here, 
And that is that you are one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he did that. That is this side of the cross. There's no distance or separation. The spirit that's with you on this side of the cross is in you on this side of the cross. The spirit that's just, is just hanging out, Jesus says, hey, listen, it's good for you that I go away. If I go away, the helper will come, the spirit of truth. He'll guide you into all, all truth. In other words, there's an upgrade coming to the entire body here. There's an upgrade coming to the church. If you'll just physically let me go, spiritually, I can make you my home. And every single one of you will have access to what only a few have access to over here. And so you go from distance and separation to union. Now, when you and I live on which side of the cross? We live on this side of the cross, but it's interesting because when we read the Bible, most of the time we interpret it from this side of the cross. And this is a huge problem, right? So I wanna talk to you guys tonight about what I call the new covenant lens. The new covenant lens is what happens to your perspective or your vision once you step out of the grave and you realize, hey, I'm not living my life to hang on the cross. I'm living my life out of the grave in a resurrected lifestyle. That's what Jesus came to bring you. He didn't come to just get you hanging on the cross all the time. If you spend your entire life hanging on the cross, then every time that God puts a desire or a dream or a goal or a hope into your heart, then you'll do what you think you're supposed to do as a Christian and you'll crucify it. Well, I'm supposed to crucify that. So you end up crucifying yourself over and over and over again. And the point of Jesus going to the cross was that there was an equation to this thing. It started with the death, then went add to the, 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 the burial, and then add to that the resurrection. Most of the time we think of the cross, we just think of the death of Jesus. But I'm gonna say something that may sound heretical, but follow with me through the end of the thought. The death of Jesus is not what saved you. Because Paul said, if Christ hasn't risen, you and I are still stuck in our sins. So the death was necessary to facilitate a resurrection. But it's actually the resurrection that sealed the salvation that he paid for. It wasn't the death, it was the resurrection. It was the entire equation. So when we say the cross, what I'm talking about is the entire process that brought salvation to us, which culminated in this beautiful resurrection. So we're not learning how to live the crucified life, we're learning how to live the resurrected life. Galatians 2.20, I have been, past tense, already done, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. What's the focus? Not the crucifixion, that's the dramatic part, but the focus is the resurrected existence. The life that I now live in this costume, in this flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here I live now on the, the new covenant side of the cross. Woo, glorious, it's awesome. It's a fulfillment of Jesus words over us in John 14, 20, when he said, in that day you will know I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Well, let's just say, for example, that here we are in this, in this perspective of union where we have access to the presence of God all the time. Somebody asked me the other day, Bill, do you think, is there anything in particular you think you're gonna give an account for? You ever feel like the sense that you're gonna give an account for something? I, I think I'm gonna give an account for four things, right? I think you can get this out of Matthew 11. I think I'm gonna give an account for how I stewarded the presence of God that I have eternal access to. 
Exactly. I think I'm going to give an account for how I stewarded the presence of God that I have access to all the time. How often did I ignore it versus stay consciously aware of this union that I have with God? I don't have to work into this, by the way. You don't strive into this. You surrender to the reality of it. It's not something you strive for. It's something you just surrender to. Otherwise, you end up trying to work yourself into it, and wow, that's a headache and a half. I think I'm going to give an account for how I treat this girl over here. I married God's daughter. I have a daughter. I know how I feel about her. It took me 20, 27 years to really figure it out, but I figured how I treat his daughter really matters. That's going to cost me a foot rub tonight. I can feel it. God's daughter wants a foot rub. I'm going to hear those, those words later on tonight. I'm absolutely sure that I will. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to give an account for, for uh, how, I, how I take care and steward my, my kids, the time with my family, the words that I speak over their life, things that I release into their life. Jesus said of himself, my words to your spirit and, and life, and as he is, so are we in this world. Am I releasing spirit and life in my words over my kids? And, and I think I'm going to give a, an account for <clears throat> how, how many heroes I made. I, I, I love the Batman movies. Never watched the Batman movies. You ever notice, if you, if you really pay attention to all of the Batman movies, and there's a ton of them, and some of them are absolutely horrible, but every single one of them has, even the Lego ones, have an element in it that is in there by design and hidden from most. And that is the true hero of the movie. It's not Batman. And it's definitely not Robin. It's a guy named Alfred. Alfred, the butler. The guy who's in the background, he seems to know more than just about everybody, and there's at some point in that film, in that story, where Batman's life is on the line, and Alfred is the guy that comes through and saves the day, and he does it in a behind-the-scenes, subtle way, in such a way that most people watching the story don't even catch it. See, everybody wants to be a hero. Nobody wants to be a hero maker. Everybody wants to be Batman. Nobody wants to be Alfred. And I think uh, in the body of Christ, all of us are called to be hero makers on some level. It may just be stewarding one life, but Jesus had this big thing about making disciples. It was kind of a deal to him. I'm just saying personally, this is how I feel like God has dealt with me. These are some things I'm going to give an account for. So here, I'm on the new covenant side of the cross, and there are definitely challenges on this side of the cross, but I have this position, this posture of union. And all of those things, those challenges in my life, are totally doable, totally possible, totally surrenderable from a new covenant perspective. If I was on that side of the cross, that stuff would be impossible. But over here, I can live from posture of rest, and in that posture of rest, I find myself actually being more productive. That'll make sense tomorrow night, all right? Let's say, though, I want to go back to the other side of the cross and I want to study some of the words that Jesus said over there. Most of the time, we take our new covenant lenses off and we go over here. And we start opening up the scriptures and everything starts becoming about works all over again. Especially things like, say, the parables. Most of the parables for, for all, all, I think, maybe all my life growing up, whenever I read any of the parables, they didn't do anything to make, I, I, they didn't put, put me in a good mood. 
I always felt like I was never living up, I was never measuring up, I was never doing it well enough, I was never, just like you might feel if, if I would talk about some of the things I talked about and the challenges I feel like the Holy Spirit's led me into over here. They're not challenges that are cumbersome, I rest on the grace of God to get those things done. But over here, the parables provoke me to, to have to try to strive for something that ultimately I really don't need to strive for. I'm, I'm making this way more complicated than I should, so let me just explain it in real super simple terms. Let's just take, for example, the parable of the sower. In the parable of the sower, you guys remember the story. A sower, he goes forth to sow. I had a guy in the Midwest tell me one time, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's like, this guy, what do you, you know what you do? You go on, you, you strategically put seed into the ground in the right spot. This guy is scattering seed everywhere like he's got an unlimited supply or something. Very smart. It's true. A sower goes forth to sow, and he just scatters seed everywhere. And you guys remember the story. Some falls on rocky soil, thorny soil, uh, hard soil, uh, good soil, the wayside. So anyway, you got essentially four different kinds of dirt. Now, if you're looking at the parable story, what are you wondering about yourself? Hey, what kind of dirt am I? It's, it's, like, it's like it's a play, and you got four choices of characters you can be, and it's all dirt. Okay, so, so the challenge, of course, is to be good soil, so when the seed of the word impacts your life, it can take root, bear fruit, I get that. That's an old covenant perspective. You didn't have to have a new covenant lens to get that revelation. That's super easy. problem with that interpretation is it's an interpretation of an old covenant perspective of distance and separation. In the new covenant, I'm in Christ and Christ is in me and my spirit is in him and his spirit's in me and there's no distance or separation between us. So let's go back to that parable again. Where's Jesus in the parable? He's the sower. Where are you? I'm the sower. I am in the sower and the sower is in me. Now this parable is not just a, a, a way for me to learn how to receive the word. This parable is a commission of my mission from a new covenant perspective. See, Jesus is very smart. He knew exactly what he was doing. This parable means one thing to a crowd that sees distance and separation. It's going to mean entirely another thing to a crowd that sees nothing but union. How do we it's about how do you even know that this is the case? How many times are the parables mentioned on that side of the cross? You ever notice that? Not a single New Testament writer ever went back and revisited the parables of Jesus. Not once. Fascinating how that worked. I think it's because they understood this concept, and especially Paul understood this concept of union. He understands the reality of the fact that, wait a minute, the point to the parables has been made. I'm in the sower and the sower is in me. So Paul does talk about going out and saying things like, you're God's field. He talks about going out and planting. I plant and one other person comes along and waters, but God ultimately gives the increase. Now you are the farmer. You're the one that's actually out throwing out the seed everywhere. And you're scattering it indiscriminately as if you've got an unlimited supply. 
It's not like you're going, oh, I'm gonna look for ripe people and ignore the unripe. Jesus said, hey, shift your perspective and I show you the, the fields are all white unto harvest. Now, from an old covenant perspective, you gotta try to label people and classify people, but from a new covenant perspective, whoa, everybody's on, everybody's ready, everybody's fair game. They may not receive it, but it doesn't mean that we should withhold the seed from them. That's an easy one. Let's try a harder parable. How about the parable of the virgins? The parable of the five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. How many of you remember that one? All right? The parable goes like this. <clears throat> There's a wedding that's happening and invitations have gone out to the wedding and these 10 virgins have gotten an invitation. And one of the speculations of this invitation is that you show up when the wedding is ready to happen, you show up and you have your lamp filled with oil. Oh, that's beautiful. Love that. Except you have five that go, okay, we're ready. We got our lamps filled with oil. And you got five procrastinators who wait until the last possible minute. And then when the call goes out, they all show up and the five that have empty lamps say to the ones with full lamps, hey, can we borrow some oil? And the full lamp folks go, yeah, get your own. Super Christian mo moment right there. You know, sacrifice, big time sacrificing. So if you're looking at the parable and you're thinking to yourself, okay, what does this mean to me? You got two choices of who you can be in this parable. You got either the wise virgins or the foolish virgins. And quite honestly, both of those choices are bad. They're both quite horrible people, really, when you think about it. Is that really my only choice? No. Find Jesus in the parable, and you'll find where you belong. Because in the wedding, you're not simply an invited guest. You're the bride of Christ. The wedding is about you. See, from an old covenant perspective, here's your basic revelation. You can't borrow somebody else's transformation, right? Take responsibility to step into the glory of the oil on your own, right? Don't borrow somebody else's. I get that. You didn't need the Holy Spirit to show you that. Anybody can figure that one out. You know what you need the Holy Spirit to show you? Who you are in relation to the wedding ceremony. You're not an invited guest to the wedding. You're in the bridegroom. The bridegrooms, you are one. You're in covenant relationship with the bridegroom. And here's the way that these weddings work, and that is that he is wooing you. He brings all the oil the bride will ever need. Oh, yes. <laughs> she, she is no source of anything. She is completely at the mercy of her bridegroom who becomes the source of life and sustenance and provision for the bride. It's not about you being locked outside a door with a fuller and empty lamp. It's about him saying, no, I am in covenant relationship with you. One. See, you think, wow, if I looked at the parables like this, they'd make me happy. That's the point. Jesus said, John 16, John 15, 11 says, these things I've spoken unto you so that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. Everything Jesus was saying 
was supposed to infuse and impart joy into the people who were hearing it, but it didn't. It made them angry, angry enough to want to kill him in some instances, and it made them sad when it was supposed to bring joy. See, from a new covenant lens, you begin to realize your union with Christ. You go back and revisit the teachings of Jesus. You're in Christ and Christ is in you. And you'll find that every single one of them brings you into joy because it doesn't just reveal how you're supposed to behave in terms of how you receive the word or how you're supposed to live your life trying to be holy. It it reveals a commission that you carry to actually release grace, to release seed, to release oil, to to be the one that actually puts Christ on display. But for some reason, for the most part, the church say, we believe in union over here, but we go back and interpret everything over here as though we still have no new covenant lens. See, you don't read the Bible, the Bible reads you. And how a person interprets the parables of Jesus tells me a ton about whether or not they actually believe they're one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Fascinating how that works. So, I want to take you to probably the most difficult book in the whole Bible, and let's look at that through the New Covenant lens, because it is on the New Covenant side of things, and I think you'll find it to be fascinating. We'll see if we can knock this out in about 10 minutes. Let's see if we can make sense of Revelation in just 10 minutes, all right? Impossible, you say. It might take 15. We'll see. Revelation, go to Revelation chapter 3. One of the first things you need to know about the book of Revelation is what the title of the book is. It's not called the Revelation. In most of your Bibles, it will accurately say the Revelation, then underneath of the words the Revelation will probably be in smaller letters of Jesus Christ, which is the name of the book. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when you, when you leave the of Jesus Christ part off of the end, then you end up getting all kinds of speculation as to what the book is revealing. Everything but Jesus so you'll get revelation of the last, last days, revelation of the end times, revelation of all, all these things, right? No, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And the book actually plays out a little bit like a Greek tragedy, a little bit like a play. I'll explain why I say that here in just a second. Jesus shows up on the scene. Uh, John, by the way, starts out in Revelation 1, says, I'm in the spirit on the Lord's day. Uh, John was in, a bad, in, a, in kind of a bad way, by the way. John uh, was the only disciple to, uh, to, to not die uh, in terms of uh, either by martyrdom or his own hand, John uh, is, is in Rome and he gets boiled in oil. It was his execution to be boiled in oil. And, uh, and he didn't die. For whatever reason, John just would not go quietly. And so after some point of time, they take him out of the oil and, and they had a, Rome had a weird law and that is you couldn't execute a person twice. So... It's true, it's there. So, uh, strange law, right? So, um, so they take John, who's essentially at this point kind of like a human French fry, right? And they put him on an isle called Patmos. It's just kind of a rocky crag. And so now John is out there pretty much by himself with private beachfront property for the rest of his days. He is, um, he is going to have encounters with the Lord, but he does it, and, he, and this is why I bring all this story up, and that is this. First off, John, John's probably not living a pleasant existence physically, but Revelation 1 starts out with this. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Fascinating. In other words, he was purposely 
intentionally in the spirit. It's not like he waited for God to show up and zap him. He intentionally went to where he knew what was available. He took advantage of the presence of God that he has access to. And he picked a day out. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And suddenly he has a revelation of Jesus. Jesus shows up and he's got swords coming out of his mouth. He's juggling planets. All kinds of cool stuff's happening. John falls down like he's dead. Jesus goes, get, get up. I got some stuff I want to tell you. And he downloads seven messages to John about seven different churches. Those churches are going to be the epicenter of a global revival that you and I are the fruit of to this day. Right? So John's getting these messages, these downloads about these seven churches. Then you get to the end of Revelation chapter 3. We're going to come to the end of these, these letters. And uh, I want you to go to Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. I want you to think about this verse with me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice, I'll come in and I will beat you like you deserve because you're a rotten sinner to the core. No. Jesus is inviting him over to your house, himself, over to your house for dinner. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. Hear my voice and open the door. I'll come in and we'll break bread together. What? In Revelation chapter 4, John says, And I looked and beheld a door standing open in heaven. So you have two doors. Two doors. One on God's end and one on our end. Hey, not a trick question. Which one's closed? Not the one on God's end. That's open. Standing open. Open door policy. On our end, it's closed. And he is knocking. Okay. This is an important point to make because it's going to set up the next one. And that's the next verse that we're going to read. To him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. Why is he wanting you to open the door? This knock, pay really close attention to this. Let me stand on the new covenant side of the cross here. Pay really close attention to what I'm about to say. This knock is what the cross initiated, which was an invitation to union. An invitation for you and I to surrender to united existence with Christ. Him in you and you in him, one inseparable communion. I, I loved, um, uh, we, we did a, a school of ministry oh, some years ago. Uh, one of the first weeks I had uh, the students, we had about 120 students in this class. And, and so I'm looking out in the class and I said, okay, guys, everybody close your eyes. I'm not going to do this in here tonight because um, it, was, it was a little awkward when we did it the, the, in the class. I said, everybody close your eyes. I want to picture yourself. You're in the throne room of God. We had some really cool music playing, so it sort of set the mood. And, uh, uh, and so I said, picture yourself. You're in the throne room and, and, and just, just kind of let yourself go there for a bit. Just let yourself see some things. And I read some verses out of, out of Revelation. I didn't read this one. Read some things descriptive of the throne room, some things out of Isaiah 6. My sleep is shattered by a blinding light, high lifted up on his throne as a great I am. Jehovah's glory is all about, and the heavens shake, and the angels shout, holy, holy, holy is God. No. So he is incredible in just making this really majestic for these guys. I said, okay, now, 
Everybody picturing the throne, the throne room? You're there, you're, 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 you're witnessing it. What is your posture in the throne room? Person after person, we took a microphone around. Keeping your eyes closed, tap you on the shoulder, tell me, what's your posture? I'm on my face before the throne. Uh, somebody else, I'm begging for mercy. I'm standing with my hands up. I'm just outside the door. I'm scared to go in. Every person in the room that we polled was somewhere in the throne room at some posture. But you know, not a single one of them had the audacity to say, I'm on the throne. Because even though we read the Bible and say that we are people who believe the Bible and people who say we believe the new covenant and say we believe that Christ lives in us and say that we believe in our union with God, none of us have the audacity to say, I'm on the throne. So my question is this, was Jesus joking? To him who overcomes, listen to the words. Revelation chapter three, verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant, I mean, nobody's ever spoken words like this. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. Is Jesus bowing down before the father begging for mercy? No. He's saying, you are going to have in relationship to me the exact same posture that I have with the Father, and that is I am seated with him on the throne, and so are you. And you say, well, wait, wait, that's to him who overcomes. So how do we overcome? Real simple, everybody knows this one, right? They overcame by what? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Okay, so catch this with me. Here's how you overcome. First off, the blood of the lamb. That's the work that Christ did. What's your part? The word of your testimony. Your testimony is just talking about what he did. Even overcoming is not in your court. He does that too. How do you overcome? By the blood of the lamb. And the word of the testimony. I'm just get my, my job, he did the work. My job is to talk about the work that he did. That's how you overcome. To him who overcomes, I will grant you to sit with me. With me. Do you understand what the resurrection was? Your salvation, your resurrection, your filling with the Holy Spirit, it's a backstage pass into the throne room of God. That's it. You, you actually are seated. It's, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? I wouldn't believe it if Jesus hadn't said it. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. So this is your position. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, it's wild. All right, Chapter four is amazing. So much good stuff goes on in chapter four. I don't have time to go into it. Let's go to chapter five, right? <coughs> oh, John, by the way, in, in the beginning of chapter four, he says, and suddenly I was in the spirit. When he sees the open door, he says, suddenly I was in the spirit. Wait a minute. Wasn't he already in the spirit? Yeah. Now he's in the spirit, in the spirit. Anybody see Inception? It's kind of like that. I don't know how deep you can get, but it's like John's like in the spirit, and now he's really in the spirit. It's like, uh, 
How deep does the rabbit hole go? We don't know. Who knows? So here's John. Now, this is why I'm going to say that this is a play. I want you to see Revelation 5, chapter 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now stop for a second. How do we know who him sitting on the throne is? Well, in verse 11, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they exist, and they were created. The 24 elders are all sitting around, standing around the throne, throwing crowns down, proclaiming holy, holy angels are swirling. All this cool stuff's happening. They're speaking of God who is sitting on the throne. And so, in chapter 5 and verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll or a book written on the inside and on the outside, the back, and sealed with seven seals. Catch this. Watch this. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose its seals? Verse 3. You ready? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found worthy or able to open the book. This is why this is a play. This is for John's benefit. John needs a question answered and he's about to get it. Okay, is God all powerful? Yes, they've just said so. Did he create everything? Absolutely. Is he worthy of everything? Yes, then theologically, how do you explain that God is sitting on the throne holding a book that he himself is not worthy to open? John's response may be your response as well, if you were in his position. He says here in verse four, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll, or look at it. God himself, sitting on the throne, holding a book that he's not even worthy to open. Now John has given his life for this gospel. He's given his life for this belief in Jehovah, in Adonai, in in the great I am, the omniscience of an all-worthy, all-powerful God. Now John is physically present in the throne room of God, and he's watching And he sees, he knows this is God. And God has now holding a book that he's not worthy to open. You gotta know John's theology is getting rocked right now. Because the one who's worthy of everything has just shown an element of weakness here. And that's shocking. But it's a play, right? It's it's important to understand Don't lose the title of the play. It's a revelation of who? Yes! This is a huge deal because this is a question that I'm getting all the time these days about who is Jesus and why do we say that Jesus is God? Answer this, you don't have to go any farther than Revelation chapter 5. John weeps. And standing next to John is an elder. And he looks at John and goes, hey, stop it. That's my paraphrase. Knock it off. 
It's kind of like this. You ever been sitting in a movie that you've already seen? You know how the film goes? You know how it ends? It ends really super good, but in the middle of the movie, there's so much conflict and everything has gone so wrong. You're sitting next to somebody who's just going, oh no, I don't think I can take this anymore. You know how the movie ends. And you smack him and go, don't leave the theater, right? It gets better, trust me. It gets really good at the end. That's what John's having right now. He's seeing a play and there's a plot twist in this play he didn't see coming and the elder standing next to him says, knock it off. It's just getting good. And then he decides to give him a little hint. He says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David, he is worthy to open the scroll. And suddenly John looks over, but he doesn't see a lion. He sees what? A lamb. That's shocking. They said there was going to be a lion, but that's not a lion. I know lion. We got animal planet back on earth. Um, I got to do is Google lion. That's clearly not a lion. See, it's the, the, the prophecy of the lion and the lamb lying down together is one and the same in Christ. See, Jesus carries this childlike sense of vulnerability, but don't mistake that vulnerability for weakness. Jesus is so vulnerable every time he sits down, his lap is full of kids. Come on. That's childlike. How many of you know a kid that wants to sit on the lap of a grouch? Nobody wants to. Come on. Even in heaven, I believe he appears vulnerable, carries that childlike vulnerability. How do we know? Well, he appeared so vulnerable that Satan actually thought he could take over heaven. But again, don't mistake the vulnerability and the childlikeness and the meekness of the lamb for weakness, because the lamb is the lion, and the lion is the lamb. And he is in you, and you are in him. And when you get a revelation of who he is, it should tell you a little bit about who you are. Let me just rabbit trail something really quick here. Some of you may think, you get into worship, and you go, well, you know, I'm not an extrovert. So I skipped the worship because that's for the extroverts. Well, what do the, ext- the introverts do when God suddenly shows up and rocks the room with joy and says, shout? You lay down being a lamb and you take up being a lion. Or what if you're the kind of person that's always up in the front and you're always loud and then one day God says, no, stop, listen, be gentle. See, your personality may have less limits than you think. God may be ripping some of your labels off to a place where no matter whether you're an extrovert or introvert, you begin to be obedient to his voice. And when he says shout, you shout. When he says be still, you be still. You just surrender to be both a lion and and a lamb in just about every situation you can be in. Listen, we, we say, well, show grace recklessly. It doesn't mean that you're a doormat. Sometimes grace will empower you, empower you to endure, and sometimes grace will empower you to confront Maybe you're always confrontational and now God says, no, I'm giving you a grace to endure. Some suffering. People are coming at you and you're supposed to confront that? Yeah, you want to. Everything in you. But no, instead, you meekly take it because for whatever reason, that's what I've been given the grace to do in this moment. Right now, I'm going to be being a lamb. But then there comes a point where it's like, man, maybe I should just like lay down and meekly take you know, all, the, all that's coming at No, 
God says, no, rise up like a lion and roar. Sometimes the grace of God will give you both the empowerment, supernatural empowerment to both confront and endure. And it's your connection to the Holy Spirit that'll tell you which one you're supposed to exercise in any given moment. But if all you are is either a lion or a lamb, then most of the time you get your situations half right. Gotta learn how to be both. And know when to be both. The lion who is the lamb shows up, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's worthy to open the scroll. You ready for this? This is where I lose most people. If I haven't lost you yet, this is where I probably lose you. All right, here we go. Verse nine of chapter five. They sang a new song saying, you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. You and I, will often pray this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter six. When we asked him for a prayer, we said, this this is how we kind of did it. Said, hey, um, you know, John gave his disciples a prayer. You haven't even given us a prayer yet. Teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. You almost hear the snarkiness of that statement as if somebody actually voices and says, John's a better leader than you are. John, John actually gave us a prayer to pray. You haven't even given us a prayer. And so Jesus goes, okay, when you pray, say, our Father. Well, he's already offended them with those first two words. He's just included them in the family. When you pray, say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. When we think thy kingdom come, we often think, well, then the earth just gets covered with this fog, and you know, like Bethel or Hillsong music just comes playing out of the air. You know, and Pastor Tim's messages are just kind of floating around in the air. You know, it's like, woo, everybody becomes aware of God. No, Revelation chapter five says he has made us kings. Some translations actually say a kingdom, which is a collection of kings, kings and priests. You carry royal identity and spiritual authority. Kings and priests. Who is the kingdom? You. When Jesus said, pray, thy kingdom come, very clever this Jesus, he was getting you to pray for yourself. Every time you pray the Lord's prayer, you're praying for a revelation of the authentic you to be unveiled. God, let your kingdom come. Yeah, I'm looking at it. There you are. You're already there, aren't you? Just waiting for the kingdom to arise. It's who you are. Jesus says the kingdom is in your midst, with you, within you, near you, at hand, closer than you can even begin to imagine. When you're praying for the kingdom to come, better be careful because you're praying for your authentic identity to be unveiled and released. Here we go, next part. Then I looked and I heard, verse 11, Revelation 5, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was thousands, ten thousands times ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive 
power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, if you say that's just about Jesus, distance and separation. But every single one, we don't have time to go into them tonight, but every single one of these things that are spoken of about Christ in here, you're worthy to receive power and riches and honor and glory and wealth and strength and blessing. Every single one of those is something that Jesus released and gave away over people. It's a record not just of Jesus' attributes. It's a record of your inheritance. This is a revelation of who you are. This is what heaven thinks you are worth. This is what you have access to in heaven's resources. In heaven's economy, this is the reading of the will. Worthy are you? Where does he live? In you. Where are you seated? Paul got this 2,000 years ago. We're still trying to get our heads around this, that we are currently, presently, right now, seated in heavenly places with Christ. This list that I just read is your inheritance. Keep going. Here we go. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth or under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard them saying, you ready? Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. Blessing, honor, glory, power be to him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb. Revelation chapter three and verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. This is a record of your inheritance. This is who you are. Jesus in John 17 said, Father, the glory that you've given to me, I give to them. That they may be one just like we are one. I and you, you and me, and I and them, perfected in unity that the world may know that you sent me and loved them just like you loved me. How in the world does the world get to know? Now, we, we, we can go out and preach the gospel to people, and we do, and it's great, and I love it. I've, I've seen more souls saved this year, I think, than any other time in, in, in our ministry. I've, I've had such a fun time this year. I feel like there's an evangelistic, just something just snapped this year for evangelism for us. I saw... Um, we saw tons of people come to Christ in Belfast, Ireland this past summer. Um, all over, it seems like all over, we've, we started in our, in our own church, we started evangelistic services every Sunday night where we're just like preaching just the simplicity of Jesus, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We're inviting people to come to Christ to lay down their lives. To, and, and people are responding every week. It's amazing. We're having an incredible time. So I see this and we can go out and we can preach the gospel. Let me tell you that the world may know the hinge point of that is this, that you get a revelation of who he is in you and you let that become the point of unity that we all come around. And pretty soon that unity, that union, that union that we exhibit, not just with him, but with one another starts to become so evident to a world that has seen for 2000 years a, a very dysfunctional body of Christ divided and dysfunctional beyond belief. And this is Jesus saying that the world may know. This is how the world knows. 
I think it's, it's interesting because it's like Jesus prays a prayer that it's up to us to answer actually. And we don't answer it by striving, we answer it by surrender. One of the reasons we wrote, finally wrote this book, Reckless Grace, is because I believe it's a major key to us stepping into a place of unity. Because unity is not uniformity, it's not where we all agree on the same thing, it's where we agree on one thing. And that is Jesus. One thing. Unity is not uniformity. Jesus shows up and spends, what, collectively, eight hours a day, we could say, with his disciples for three years. It's 8,000 hours, and he doesn't clean up all their theology. He doesn't answer all their questions. He leaves them with issues. This tells me that Jesus' primary thing on, on earth was not to rob people of the quest and the journey. I think that one of the greatest things that, that Tim or myself or any teacher can give people is a quest. I hope you leave with more questions than you came in with tonight because that's what Jesus does to me. He doesn't come and answer my questions as much as he questions my answers. I show up with a question, he'll answer one question and then go, hey, before you go, I got two more for you. You can ponder these for a while, which means I know less now than I did maybe 10 years ago. And I think this is the deal. I think if, if tonight, maybe you say, well, I, I, I don't even know what to think. I don't know what to do with. What, where's the life application? Here's the life application. If you leave out of this room tonight and you're more fascinated with God than you were when you came in, then I've done exactly what I came here to do tonight. To be more fascinated with God, to be, to be provoked, not to come to me. You may not even remember my name, but if you walk out talking about God, talking about how amazing he is, understanding maybe, maybe okay, maybe there's some things I've never seen, maybe there's some things I've never understood. Whoa, this new covenant thing, do I actually believe it? I claim to, but I want, to, I want to believe it more. I want to see through a new covenant lens. Go back and take a look at all of the parables of Jesus. Find Jesus in the parable and you'll find you. Take a look at Revelation from a New Covenant lens perspective all the way through the book. It will absolutely blow your mind. Revelation is the only book of the Bible that says blessed are those who read the words of this book. Fortunately, it doesn't say anything about blessed are those who understand the words of this book. <laughs> Many people avoid it because it scares them when it's actually meant to instill joy within you. Why? Because it's a story of the lamb who has overcome and he's already overcome, it's already done. The beauty of Revelation is that it solidifies in us what it hopefully solidified in John that day and that is this, Jesus was not just a teacher and he wasn't just a man and he wasn't just a prophet. He is very God of very God. God is not God without Jesus. And he is absolutely co equal with God. Don't ever make any mistake. People say, well, Bill, how many paths are there to God? One. One. His name is Jesus Christ. One path to the Father. But there are a lot of paths to Jesus. I'm looking at a bunch of them sitting in this room right now. Eight billion people on this planet right now, that means that there's at least eight billion paths to Jesus. And the beauty is that Jesus will travel down any path to get to you. 
And begin to realize that's who you are. That's why he has made his home in you so that you always have him to introduce into any problem, any situation, any broken life, any person that you come in contact with. You say, I don't know how to save anybody. You don't have to save anybody. Introduce them to the one who has. You say, I don't know how to heal anybody. You don't have to heal a single person. All you have to do is introduce them to the one who does. Give him room and watch him do what he does. But you don't have to say, oh, we make an appointment and Jesus will show up. Oh, we'll come to church and Jesus will show up. Oh, no, you are a living invitation to Jesus Christ for every person that you meet. It is who you are. This is the beauty of recognizing your union with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not just appealing to God for mercy from a posture of being on the floor of the throne room or peering from around a corner. You sit in a position of royal identity, which means your prayers and your declarations can be very different now. Instead of praying prayers of wishful thinking from earth towards heaven, you can make prayers of declaration from heaven towards earth, and you can watch chains of sin and bondage be broken off of people just like that. Because every word, every declaration becomes an invitation to agreement. They come into agreement, the things you declare, and next thing you know, they walk in freedom. And they can dig their heels in all day long, all day long, all day long. It's okay. Jesus isn't going anywhere. We're just, we're just going to continue to be a living invitation. I'm just going to speak freedom and spirit and life over you. And eventually, one of these days, you may actually just agree with what I've just said. My favorite, um, it's in the stories in the book of, and I hadn't thought about this in um, 10 years, 10 plus years. In 2007, I'm in Hawaii, and uh, there's this guy named Frank, and he was a professor of philosophy at a West Coast university, retired in Hawaii, and uh, he was an atheist. He didn't want anything to do with God until I told him atheists actually don't exist. Um, best you can be is an agnostic because you would have had to search all over the universe at the exact same time and said, there is no God in order to actually be an atheist. So the best you can actually be on an educated level is I don't know. If a person claims to be an atheist, all they are is just rebellious and mad at God. I just, I'm, I'm just not going to believe in you. It's kind of like saying, I'm, I'm just not even going to go looking. Um, but there's no way that you can look everywhere. So the best you can be is an agnostic. So Frank finally conceded, yes, I'm an agnostic. Fine, I don't know. So I tried to, argue. I was like, good, we made headway. We're arguing Frank into the kingdom of God, one argument at a time. Frank was sick, he wasn't well. And uh, one day I'm sitting next to him, a uh, little town of Kihei in Maui, sitting on a rock, watching the waves come in. I said to Frank, so I, we had, I just read this verse in John chapter 20 and verse 23. Right after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Then he says this strange cryptic verse that we ignore Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And whoever sins you retain, they are retained. We're going to talk about this tomorrow night, by the way. We ignore that verse, but what if it's true? What if Jesus wasn't joking? What if we actually, I don't know, I think this is a safe thing to say in a room full of Christians, but what if we actually believed that what Jesus said was real? And I got tired of Frank just kicking back at my arguments all day long. And I said, you know what, Frank? I read this verse out of John. It says, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. So by the authority of John 20, 23, I just say if Jesus were sitting here, his mouth would say to your ears, you're forgiven, you're clean, you're pure because of what I've done. Because of what the blood of Christ has done, I just declare that your sins are forgiven. You're clean, you're holy right now. You don't have to do a single thing to be right with God. You, you are, because of what Christ has done, clean and holy. And then I said these words. It sounded so weird when I said it. Then I said these words. 
do you believe me? Because I didn't even know if I believed me. I'm not looking at Frank. I'm looking out toward the ocean. I'm trembling. I look over at this guy and tears rolling down his cheeks. I've been talking for a little while at this point. I'm just declaring him just the grace of God over his life. You're forgiven. You are forgiven. Christ, I kept picturing the thief on the cross. I wasn't even asking for forgiveness. Like, hey, when you get to where you're going, if you think about me, that'd be cool. Yeah, you'll be with me. What kind of a salvation prayer is that? I decided if Frank wasn't going to do the work, then I was going to do the work. I started declaring grace over Frank. Frank starts crying. I said, do you, do you believe me? And he goes, I don't understand. I've never felt this in my whole life. The more you're talking, the more I think, man, I wish that were true. And I'm thinking, maybe it is. And Frank gave his life to Christ right there that day. I'd never seen that before. And I thought at that point, I thought, okay, Maybe we've just been trying to lean on our own understanding for far too long. Maybe we should just tell these people what Christ has done. Declare the grace of God over them. If they don't believe you, if they don't agree with you, if they don't, nothing's changed. But what? If something happens in their heart and they, they surrender to what you're saying is true and say, yeah, wow. Again, we'll talk about this more tomorrow night, but I think... I think maybe we've complicated what some, something that heaven meant to be so, so, so very invitational and life-changing and so simple. Why? Because none of us have the power in ourselves to clean ourselves up. Some of us need somebody to carry us. And I think if we take responsibility to release the grace of Christ in a radical way, and we'll see, we'll see an evangelism explosion like likes of which the world has never seen, but you'll never believe that you can do it unless you know you carry royal authority. You sit on the throne. You carry a divine priesthood. You sit on the throne. You're with him. You're in him. And when you make a decree, you make a decree and it's established. Why? Because you sit in the position and a posture of the one who is the king of kings. It's not that you're Jesus. It's not that he is you. It's not that you're God. It's not that he is you. But you are the home that he has chosen to build and make for himself to live in. He must think an awful lot of you. Bow your heads with me tonight. Maybe tonight in this room you say, Bill, I have no idea uh, of what you're talking about. I've never, never felt like I could ever be worthy. It doesn't feel right that I could even be worthy to be in the throne room, let alone sit on the throne. I've never experienced the grace of God. Maybe you're in the position of Frank tonight. You're saying, I, I, I need grace in my life. I'm not even yet in a position where I can give grace away. I need grace. Every head bowed and every eye closed in this room tonight. You say, Bill, my heart stopped right now. I absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, I know that I would be with Jesus in the presence of the Lord. I know where my eternal home is, and, and I, I know I, I absolutely am saved. Would you just raise your hand? Just say, I know I'm saved, without a doubt. Okay, all over this room, hands going up, put your hands down. Every person who just raised your hand, you are, you are a prayer team tonight. I just want you right now to begin to intercede. God will begin to move in hearts in this room this evening. You say, Bill, right now, I need grace in my life. I can't carry myself and I can't do it myself. I need somebody to carry me. I need Jesus and I need the grace of God in my life. And if that's you, just raise your head and let our eyes meet. And I just want to have a conversation with you right where you're sitting. I speak his grace over you. I just declare the grace of Christ over you. Yeah. 
He calls you son. And he knows your name. And he says, welcome home. Grace to you. I just speak the grace of Christ over you. Oh, that he sees you as royalty. And he sees you as royalty. And he says, you're mine. He says, daughter, welcome home. Welcome home. Thank you, Jesus. I just speak the grace of God over you tonight. The forgiveness of heaven that you eternally will feel the embrace of heaven, that river that flows from the cross that so fills and floods you that you never for a moment feel anything but the purity of God saying, I'm not putting anything in your account. Amen. (laughs) Speak his grace over you. It's a crown on your head and a robe around your shoulders. He hasn't forgotten you. Yeah, he hasn't forgotten you. I speak his grace to you now. I pray that the embrace of heaven would just flow to you right now. That you would hear his words say, welcome home. Welcome home. Amen. 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 I just speak the grace of Christ over you. Wow. He's so proud of you. Welcome home. Grace to you. And grace to you. Amen. Grace to you. Yeah. He knows your name. I pray right now you'd feel the forgiving power of heaven just flow over you. As he says, you're mine. I'm not putting any of your transgressions in your account. (laughs) I'm not looking for perfect people. I'm looking for you. And I made you perfect. And it's not anything you've done what I've done. So welcome home. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Everybody put your hand over your heart, would you? Father, pray tonight. I pray, Lord, that right now in this room, every person in this room would just feel the breath of heaven. Fill us all up with just a fresh wind of your spirit. God, that we would find, find ourselves to become living invitations, releasing your grace, releasing your wholeness, releasing your love in radical, radical ways to a broken world that doesn't know how good you really are. Father, I pray that a new season of evangelism would mark this church. That a new season of evangelism would mark this church. And God, that people all over this region would realize, it's almost like a... mm, like the smell of fresh bread coming out of a bakery to people who are starving. God, let it be even as they drive past that they would recognize that this is a place where they can come and meet you. They can come and meet you because every person they meet in here is a living invitation to that relationship. So Lord, I pray tonight, commission every single person in this room to become a living ambassador for heaven's royalty, 
for the kingdom of God. It's who you are. It's what you carry. Lord, may it be that it marks this house. It marks every heart in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.